When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, welcome to the latest edition of Bread and Butter. I'm Caroline Kenyon and it's my great pleasure to talk to people about all sorts of things that catch my fancy to do with the world of food anywhere in the world. And today we're talking Scotland. And people might have a rather sort of narrow view of what Scottish food produce is. They might think haggis, or they might think whiskey. But actually, there are some really exciting products coming out of this very entrepreneurial region. I'm delighted to have with me today, Keith Patterson, Managing Director of Shore Seaweed. And I'm also delighted to welcome Susie walker Munro of the Tea Gardens of Scotland and tea grower herself at Knettles. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. Keith, I know that you're based over in Glasgow. Tell me a little bit about Shore and how it it came into being. It's a really interesting uh, project. Um, We were founded in 2016 um, and we're fortunate to have someone who's looking to invest in sustainable food um, that was based from the Highlands of Scotland. They were very passionate about employment in the food sector in the Highlands of Scotland and looking at sustainability. The, the, the idea came from looking at a number of options which the Scottish land and coastline to provide were unique. We looked at all these options and seaweed stood out to us. Here we have this crop that's 100% sustainable to grow, doesn't require any fresh water, land, feed or fertiliser, and it actually absorbs CO2 in the process. So if we're looking for a food and a crop that's great to feed the planet, um, seaweed is perfect. And the Scottish coastline, um, especially where we harvest our seaweed up in Wick, is some of the cleanest waters around um, and very good temperature for growing seaweed. So we've got this perfect environment for growing and harvesting seaweed. Um, And we also have great infrastructure in Scotland around aquaculture already. And it made perfect sense to us, therefore, to, to look at seaweed. And we also noticed that seaweed is one of the most nutritional plants on the planet, full of iodine that we particularly lack in the UK diet. But also as we move to a plant-based diet, it's full of plant-based fibre, protein, macro and micronutrients. And it really is a superfood that we can grow on our doorstep. And, and we decided we two challenges. One was to create a business that could efficiently harvest and grow seaweed. And today we've got 40 kilometres of coastline that we harvest from and their own seaweed farm. But the second challenge was 
how do we introduce the superfood back into the UK diet where it was 100 years ago? Um, and that's really what we've been doing over the last number of years um, and delighted to be where we are now. What a fascinating story, Keith. Thank you so much. You're prompting lots of questions in my mind. But over to you, Susie. Just tell us a little bit about the development of the tea uh, industry in Scotland, because that's something that's really going to take people okay. by uh, the, the tea industry, I'm not sure industry is the right word for it because it is very, very micro. Um, so tea growing in Scotland because of our climate is never going to result in the rolling hills that you have in Sri Lanka or Japan or Assam. Um, so we, we are on a less is more business model, basically. And when we uh, started growing tea here in Scotland, it was encouraged by myself because I'd been doing this um, or growing tea since 2007, but had not proved the concept until 2015. So no one actually knew whether you could actually even make tea without it tasting absolutely disgusting. You know, we needed to actually um, uh, work very hard at getting enough crop in the very first place. When we got consultancy help, things changed and we realized that actually we had something that was very niche very special and um, our scottish soils as well lend themselves being on the acidic side for most of the country to um growing tea which loves a sort of 5.5 you know to six ph produced in 2015 canettles gold which we sold to pico tea in edinburgh um we had proven a concept suddenly you know the press were interested and this was tiny tiny amounts we're talking two kilograms that's sort of a couple of bags of sugar large bags of sugar um and yet it was you know it was absolutely delicious so this enabled us to encourage others to come in on this and we're all within our group. There's actually nine of us all together and um, we're farming backgrounds or rural businesses. And we were looking for a bit of diversification on our farms. Some of us had old walled gardens that you couldn't get heavy machinery into, large machinery into. Um, and, and tea likes sheltered spaces. And, and a lot of these old gardens, you know, the, the, the Victorians knew what they were doing when they positioned them. And so this is another plus to growing tea here in, in Scotland. I think a lot of us were largely attracted by the romance of growing tea with a little concept as to how and what hard work it actually is. Um, tea grows very slowly in Scotland, but because of our soil type, our light levels, the plants are slightly stressed and therefore you're getting something a bit more akin to the mountain teas that people are used to tasting like the Darjeeling's and that gives a slightly more flowery flavor that comes through and so this is what we've focused on and again with consultancy help um, you know the, the nine of us have pushed on and now got our tea in Fortnum and Masons by basically collaborating and combining our leaf and having it um, made a central point at the Scottish Tea Factory and so it's all very exciting and that's that's where we are at the moment. What a wonderful story and the thing is that when you both tell these stories it sounds so you know and then this happened and you know it was all very straightforward but you're both entrepreneurs and you know in in my way I'm also an entrepreneur and I know how incredibly hard it is just take me back both of you and just tell me how the, the idea first came to you because it it seems so normalized once you've established a brand and a concept it seems normal but Keith when you first thought of seaweed I mean 
that just wasn't really a thing in this country. As you say, you're trying to revive something that was current 100 years ago. So just talk me through that, that kind of the origins of the concept and then how you dealt with, you know, the naysayers. Yeah, I mean, the, when you looked into seaweed and actually started investigating it, the, the, the product seemed a far more obvious solution than it would in first. It's actually the world's biggest aquaculture product and um, bigger than salmon globally. And we looked at the numbers and said, well, if it can be made to work around the world, why can't it be made to work in this country? And it fitted with a number of trends as well in terms of the way we eat, more nutritious diets, more plant-based diets, and more fiber, more protein in the diet. Our biggest challenge then was, as you say, the naysayers. And one of the challenges, when we told consumers, we did our research, consumers loved the story. They loved the background, they loved the health benefits. But the same question always came back, what the heck do we do with it? Um, and, and therefore the levels of consumer knowledge of how to cook with it was very, very low. So while we see seaweed appearing often in sort of top restaurants around the country more and more now, it was very difficult for the ordinary consumer to know how to cook with it. It wasn't very accessible. And that's why we created our short brand and we thought that was very important for the project because we decided we had to get seaweed into everyday products. So in 20, March 2020, we launched um, this iteration of our Shore brand. And one of the, the headline product that we have is our Shore chips. And what better way of getting a product into the UK consumer is in snacks. We love snacking in this country. Um, and it's a category and a product where consumers are willing to try something new. It's also seaweed is so rich nutritionally. You only need to have two or three grams a day to get the benefits. Therefore, it's one of the few areas where actually, by using seaweed and snacking, it's one of the few snack products that actually deliver nutritional benefits as you eat it, um, particularly iodine um, that we lack in the diet. And that's an issue that's getting worse and worse as we move away from um, dairy, uh, meat and fish, because that's where typically we get iodine in the diet and seaweed's the only plant-based solution for that. So. Yes, seaweed, as we looked into it, became a, a more and more obvious solution uh, to the problems we have in the world. Um, but it was really innovation that, that was the key hurdle, how to get people to eat seaweed for us to overcome. That's so intriguing. And I'm speaking as the, as the mother of a vegan son, I'm very interested in what you say about iodine and, and how a plant-based diet is, is lacking in it, or, or potentially could be, but now that you're providing a solution. So Susie, tell me a bit about tea, how tea came into your life. Have you always been passionate about tea? Um, you know, to be really honest, I'm not when I started it. And so in 2007, we um, well, basically I was sitting in a dentist's waiting room in Dundee and I picked up a magazine and it was talking about a tea garden down in Cornwall. And they were growing tea and the pictures looked like they were showing the same plants that we had. And I thought, no, that means we might have the same soil type. And so came at it really from, from that angle. But actually, once we'd got cuttings from this tea garden, we then realized that cuttings were shallow rooted. They didn't grow well in Scotland because our weather can be quite um, feral, basically. So they needed protection. They needed to go into polytunnels. And, and so there were sort of things that made you think, this is probably a really stupid idea. This is not the sort of um, high-end crop that, you know, 
and, and easy crop to grow that we thought it was going to be. But the science has moved on so much now and we were able to get cold tolerant seed. Um, this was from Georgia and also from Nepal. So these are plants either grown at very high altitude or a lot of research has gone into selecting the most appropriate seed. And so once we were bringing seed in, those plants make you feel more committed to a long-term project because it's like growing an orchard. Um, you know, if you were going to, to plant apple, you wanted apples, you would have a seven-year lead-in. And tea that's grown from seed, um, you know, in Darjeeling lasted, you know, 100, 120 years. These bushes are still going. If you grow from cuttings, they only last about 45 years. So we um, felt that although there were a lot of upfront costs and yes you know likewise are people saying you're completely mad why why are you doing this um we just thought well if we accept and we were all very fortunate to have our own farms or rural businesses that this wasn't going to be something where it was a business you were suddenly going to be making tons of money in the first three years or anything like that we just said look let's just accept this is long term and we were able to get leader funding which um, is European funding that helped us with the sort of startup the innovation because again tea had not been grown from seed in Scotland so we needed a lot of help with sort of special nettings that allowed more light through sort of 80% of the light through we needed help with sort of irrigation and lots of sort of innovations been involved so we've been quite lucky in a way because we've all been fortunate with having existing businesses um, that have been able to help support us to get to the point that we're at now. Yeah, no, the naysayers is a really interesting one because um, my father always said to me, you know, gosh, choose a business to go into where everybody understands what the product is. And I thought at the time, everybody knew exactly what tea was. Um, and, you know, from, from where I was in 2007, tea to me was actually um, just something you drank as quickly as possible you dunked your tea bag you were normally in a rush and um actually what we have learned in this journey and, and you know with our consultancy help all all nine of us have sort of done courses and really increased our tea learning and as soon as you increase your tea learning you realize how much more you need to know and how little you you do know and how much more there is out there and and so so to, to the naysayers what i would say is is that we are specializing in a product that is a loose leaf tea it's handmade it's something that you infuse in the cup and then you get a second infusion your tea bag you can only use once and then you have to throw it away it's a totally different thing um and and in a funny sort of way with, with loose leaf tea it's it's it is such a totally different product and you're picking up different flavors each time you reinfuse it and so we've we've all got very very excited by our learning journey with this and so it's it's um trying to get people to say okay just let's be brave we already like a breakfast tea we like our pg tips why don't we try something else that's a loose leaf tea and so um you know to, to, to the naysayers who sort of said well why are you doing it you've got such tiny amounts those, those tiny amounts are delicious they are picking up flavors from the scottish soil and it's something that is um our, our tea we've really focused on on production methods that are about what works for our climate in this country so that we can put ourselves up there with the highest types of 
and the best teas in Japan or the best teas that have come out of Sri Lanka, um, etc. So and China, obviously. And, and so, um, yes, it, 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 it's, it's a slightly different product of what people think of when they think of a tea bag. It, it's in a slightly different category. So, um, you know, the, the naysayers, yes, uh, if they want to sort of keep drinking tea from tea bags, then that's absolutely fine. But um, this is a, appealing to a market who are looking for something slightly different. Oh, I completely understand that. No, I love your enthusiasm. It's so infectious. But um, <laughs> I'm just thinking that, you know, there's, there's a big sort of education role for both of you here, isn't there, with the public? There is. In a way, yeah. Susie, you've become a bit of a tea sommelier. I don't want it to sound like I'm becoming a tea snob, though. I am absolutely no, not. not. At all. Do you know what? Everyone has different things they want out of their cup of tea, basically. And, and people like it with milk, they like it without. And so it's um, it has, you're right, the word sommelier is definitely the direction that, that myself and the rest of us in the group have moved in. But, you know... It's an incredible thing, tea. You know, what one plant you can make from it. You can process a green tea, a yellow tea, a puerh tea, an oolong tea, or from one Camellia sinensis plant. It's extraordinary. So um, it, it's a fascinating journey. It sounds like it. And so, Keith, tell me about the the, the role that, that educating the public palate plays for you, because I guess there'll be quite a few people who might sort of wrinkle their nose and say, "Ooh, seaweed." And yeah, you know, it's a really how how it's do a really you interesting that one. one. And there's a crossover there a bit between the tea conversation because seaweed's not just seaweed. There's hundreds of different types of seaweed. Uh, we in fact harvest nine different species, each very different composition of flavour and taste. And often people's first impressions in this country of eating seaweed will be from products coming in from Asia, um, such as nori sheets. And often the consumers have always said, fishy. And in the UK, we're very wary of fishy flavours. So we found it very important to create products that took something, seaweed's very high in something called umami, um, and not deliver a a fishy flavour. And we crafted the products very carefully using the different species and different flavors of species that we harvest to create a, free, a flavor profile that's very mainstream. And we're delighted actually some of our products won a great taste award. And even people who are a bit skeptical about seaweed when they eat it, find it's a very mainstream flavor, a bit like a prom cracker. It's a version of that. Um, so that's really been our key way of getting into consumers is, is, is lots of tasting of the products. You know, everywhere we go, we get people to try the products and, and then relying on the flavor. And I think as a small brand with limited budgets, you've got to rely on the quality of the product um, to deliver that. And, and we spend a lot of time on social media and back of our packs telling the story of seaweed. We don't want to be preachy about it, but we want to educate people as they consume the products, why this is a great thing to be doing. And we hope over time that seeds into the general population. It's really interesting because you wouldn't necessarily think that there were lots of parallels between tea and seaweed snacks. But actually, more and more are emerging. I mean, one is the kind of um, the educational role that you're playing, too, that they're, they're both products which are small in production but very high in quality. Also with, you know, their health-giving qualities. I mean, Susie, is that something that you talk about Yes, yeah, it is very much so. And um, I think it's one of those things where you have to be very careful about the claims that you make, because there's a lot of science out there. And, you know, um, some of it is about, you know, green tea and how good it might be if you're suffering from cancer and on medication for it. And, um, you know, I think there's enough science out there to say that that, um, 
that green tea, yes, is good for that particular situation. But sometimes it's things like um, how long do you leave the leaf in the water for? How much time do the molecules have to sort of infuse into the liquor? And um, also what conditions are, is that tea grown under? Um, is it higher in caffeine um, because it's had more um, shading or is it low in caffeine because it's been out on in bright sunshine or high winds and there's just so many variables as to um, the process that ultimately leads to what the consumer can access so um, if you were drinking a black tea that might be um, something that you drink because you enjoy a very gentle um, slow release of caffeine rather than the yeah. spike in the coffee and maybe you want to be you're studying or something like that and 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 because of the way the tea is processed um, there is L-theanine which comes through to counteract the caffeine which gives you that slow slow release and L-theanine is only found in three plants in the world and um, I mean one's a holly bush in South America uh, another is a mushroom in Europe and then there's tea <laughs> and so you know there's but, but, but it depends on the the process you are using to enable the access of whatever it is that is might be considered particularly good for you so people enjoy drinking white tea that's one of the least processed teas and it's very pure tea um, and 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 so it's a really tricky one to answer there because you've got to be terribly careful about the claims of the health benefits of tea. But one of the things I do feel is it is a very pure product and it does reflect the, the, the soils and the environment it's been grown in. Mm, no, I can really understand that. I remember about 10 years ago, everything was being claimed as a superfood, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a term that we sort of flirt with, but yeah, it, it can be a, be a difficult one. I mean, the health benefits of seaweed we're just scratching the surface on. Uh, well, you know, we know it's high in fiber. We know it contains protein and antioxidants and, and lots of minerals like iodine. That's fantastic. But there are elements like fukudan uh, seaweeds uh, delivers that the science is still very new. Uh, but there's a lot of exciting work going on in those areas in terms of actually some of the health benefits that might be in there. But but a lot of that is long-term projects. and it, And it's... Um, a bit like Susie said, you've got to be careful of what you claim until these things have been proven in science. Yeah. So we've know, been a lot, there's lots to talk about in seaweed already, and that's fine. But there's some really exciting things that I think are being discovered and um, be discovered over the next number of years. It was exactly the same with, with tea. There is a, a huge amount of, of um, science that's coming forward and has been for a very, very long time. But you, you just have to sometimes, with, with science, just watch it a bit sometimes because papers get regurgitated. And then when you track back and say, well, where did that really come from? Sometimes the, the database isn't that large. And so it, um, you, you really, really do have to, to wait till you get very assertive claims and, and they really are backed up. But it's, it, there's no doubt that, that tea is, is good for people. It's just the precise claims that are accredited to it. Well, I certainly love drinking it. Um, I, I couldn't quite say why I enjoy it so much, but I know that I do. And I just think, you know, if something makes you feel happy. That's that's almost good enough, isn't it? Apart oh, from, I mean, it's, it's fabulous. I, I feel it. I mean, you know, it, it, of course it's good for you. <laughs> of course it is. It's a natural product. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I'm probably burbling a bit. But yes, yeah, some of the scientific claims you think, no, just, just enjoy it for what it is. That sounds like a, a good approach to me. Now, the other thing that I think binds you both, I think that probably is that you're both collecting gathering in by hand is that right yes yes that's correct tell us a bit yep. more about you keith and how the seaweed is brought in so um we we wild harvest the majority of our seaweed 
Um, and, and, and we, you've got to be very careful. You can't just go out onto any old beach and harvest seaweed. Uh, you've got to have really close controls on the water quality, um, any runoff from the land, any forms of pollution. One of the reasons seaweed's so nutritious is it absorbs minerals from the sea. So you've got to make sure that sea is very clean. It's a big piece of work there. Uh, we hold licenses for all our sites that we harvest from, that will either be from private landowners or the crowded estate. And then to ensure we do it sustainably, we hand cut the seaweed to allow it to regrow. And we only take a certain quota from every beet, every um, rocky outcrop. Um, and we make sure, um, we do the science to make sure that that seaweed's regrowing for the following season. So, you know, just because something's wild harvest doesn't mean you're doing it sustainably. You've got to create the framework to take what you can take and allow it to regrow every year. Um, and we're really proud. We've done a lot of work around that to create a model to, to harvest our seaweed sustainably um, and, and, and to make sure it's um, safe and highly nutritious. What time of year is it gathered in, Keith, or is it all year round? It's a really good question because each seaweed species has a different season. Um, usually they last about three to four months where you can harvest it in season. But luckily for us, each species has a different season. So we're actually harvesting all year round, but just different plants as the months go on. That's really interesting. So do you get customers saying, oh, my you know, snack X didn't taste quite like the last packet because it's well, weird? What, what, what actually the process, well, once we've harvested our seaweed, we air dry it. And once you've done that, I mean, seaweed's actually 90% water. And one of the reasons when you eat dried seaweed, you only need a couple of grams is because you've taken all the water out of it. And um, once you've done that, it becomes shelf stable. So you have to harvest your annual supply of seaweed within those three months. And therefore you can deliver a product all year round. Yes, no, that's that's uh, probably good for you and your forward planning. And what about yeah. you, Susie? What about how do you um, yeah. harvest the tea? Well, because we've got the, the nine of us um, at our different tea gardens, so we're sort of spread across Angus, Fife, Perthshire, King Gardenshire. And so we have to get the leaf to the Scottish Tea Factory, um, and that involves basically each garden organising their own plucking. So on, on your sort of plucking days you then have to um, get two or three other people to help you you're plucking one bud and two leaves so um, you're only taking five percent off the plant which does obviously have to be repaid to the plant through um, liquid manures which we make from things like um, the grass the dockins the nettles everything around us um, and we have these sort of big IBC tanks so you can replace that goodness to to the plant and you're having to pluck quite a lot of leaf basically for a black tea so one kilogram of made black tea means you've actually had to pluck five kilograms of green leaf off the plants and that's only a bud and two leaves so it gives you some idea basically of um, how much labor is involved in this um, somebody told me that apparently for um, one kilogram of black tea 12,000 a bud and two leaves are plucked that's 12,000 plucking motions <laughs> with by hand uh, that are done so I mean it's it's uh, I've never actually tried to count that and nor is anyone else here but um, it's one of those figures that gives you an idea of just what goes into a kilogram of black tea and um, so so then then that's then um, transferred to the uh, Scottish tea factory where the processing takes place and um, then very like actually you you, you were actually um, just saying there Keith there's 
we, we basically combine our batches. So the, the tea from our plucking season, which will start around about June time, um, is June, July, August into September. And so you combine June with September and you have to then do your tea tastings as you go through to be um, happy that everything that you put in that combining um, of the season's growth you know, as you would like it. Um, and then obviously it's it's bagged up and it's able to then, you know, go to market basically, which is either Canton or Portland and Masons, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it can't actually go to the end of the season. And then then obviously it's, it's not that we're sort of selling it throughout the season. We have to wait to the end of the season and then do it because we just don't have the large enough quantities basically. And um, we would like to split up into a first flush and a second flush and that will come. But at the moment, this is the way we're doing it. Goodness, for both of you, so much hard work and knowledge and care that goes into creating your products. And perhaps had um, either of you known at the beginning of your journeys just quite how much hard work and thought it would take, you might have been a little more apprehensive. But just very sadly, we are starting to run out of time. But I've got a, a question for both of you. I'm based here in England, and I've been involved in the world of British food for two decades. I've always thought um, particularly in the last decade, that the Scottish food scene was so energetic and so entrepreneurial and dynamic. Do you think there's something special going on in Scotland regarding food? I think for me, there's a transformation over the last 15 years of a, not what we've got, but an appreciation of what we have in Scotland. And I think you can see that in the push of both small independent retailers all the way up to some bulks stocking more good quality Scottish produce. But you can also see it in the restaurant scene where, you know, local produce is leading the way. So I think, you know, we've always had it. Um, I think there's just a much more appreciation of what we're doing. And I think we're also becoming a bit braver in terms of innovation as well around food and a bit more confident around that area. But I think by and large, it's an appreciation of what we have that's grown. Yes, that, that really strikes a chord. I had a, a recent weekend in Edinburgh and I have to say I ate so well from beginning to end. I had wonderful food. I've very much. And I would also add to that that I feel that um, the authenticity of the, the food coming out of Scotland now is is much, much better protected. So we've got Food Standards Scotland up here. Um, you know, there are teeth now. So if there's a problem with passing off, which I'm afraid is something that's sort of endemic to any industry where it's a niche product throughout the globe, we're not talking about just Scotland. But actually, Scotland now is getting the teeth to actually um, deal with problems when they happen. So um, I think there's much more trust. Um, I mean, we, our, our Tea Gardens of Scotland group, were involved with, with um, the University of, of Aberdeen, and this is um, in an ionomics project. And ionomics enables you to check the leaf so you can walk into a shop even though that tea's been processed and it's been through ovens etc you can pluck that off the shelf and you can actually test it now for the um, elements in it whether it's got more copper more iron and that's related to a Scottish soil so um, it's being checked against teas from all over the world so that different teas will show different elements depending which part of the globe that those teas have actually been grown. And so now the science is there to, to back up as well. And that's something that's incredibly comforting. And it's something that we went in right at the beginning saying, if people are paying high end prices for things, they absolutely have to know that they are getting that high end item. And, um, that, that, and, and therefore, 
it's an exciting place to be now, Scotland, and I think we're very lucky. I mean, obviously, we've got lovely fresh air, we've got beautiful rivers, we've got all, I mean, everything you could possibly want that lends itself to marketing a product. But I think also now we're in a much, much stronger position too. So it's really, it's a win-win. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. I tell you, an idea that's just popped into my head while we've been talking is how about Keith creates the most delicious little snack that goes perfectly with a cup of your tea, Susie? How would oh, that... that's brilliant. Because, you know, they do pair really well. Seaweed does pair with a little bit of shortbread. You can get shortbread seaweed shortbread yeah. things, which I love. And it's great. <laughs> Lovely. Well, I look forward to being invited to one of the first tastings. Thank you both. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. 